Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm, I'm James. I'm one of the elders here at MRC. Let me just pray uh, before we start. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I do pray now that as we sit under it, uh, that you would please be with us by your spirit. Help us to understand and help me to speak your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Dwight was a man under pressure. The stress was rising, and he was living on a diet of coffee and cigarettes. He was smoking about four packs a day. He'd been working flat out on this project for months, and finally, tomorrow was the go day. He was in charge, and so the success of this enterprise rested entirely on his shoulders. Why is Dwight under this pressure? Well, he's better known as General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was the Supreme Allied Commander for the D-Day invasion, and that's Nazi-occupied Europe in June 1944. His decisions had life and death implications for hundreds of thousands of military personnel, and ultimately on the outcome of World War II. And the morning he gave that command to launch the invasion, uh, he was under some serious pressure. Now, I'm glad to say that's quite a, a rare example of pressure, but I wonder, what, what are you like under pressure? How do you respond when the heat is really on? Now, we all know what, what it's like to have pressure and stress. For some of us, it might come with a territory in your work. It might be a nurse or a midwife on a packed-out ward. It might be a surgeon on the operating table, a firefighter tackling a house fire. It comes with a territory, that sort of pressure. But many of us will know what it feels like to have a sort of time-critical piece of work to complete, where there are serious consequences for missing a deadline. Perhaps it would affect the business or your department. Perhaps it will uh, stop you passing a course. Even just day-to-day -day life throws up many, many pressurised situations. The pressure of mounting bills, particularly at the moment, an exhausted mum at her wit's end, facing redundancy and unemployment, or sometimes just surviving another day in your current circumstances is just pressure enough. And we all know what it's like to be under pressure. And I think you could learn a lot about yourself quite quickly when you're under pressure. But I wonder, when you are under pressure, do you pray? And if you do pray, what do your prayers look like? Well, Jesus is no stranger to pressure. You don't have to go very far in the Gospels to see various examples of that. The physical strain of long days, lots of miles on the road, sleep deprivation, the emotional burden of flat-out ministry, and constantly giving of himself to others to meet their deepest needs. And significantly, the spiritual battles that he faced against the devil who attacked him more than any other man that's ever walked this earth. And the pressure didn't come any greater than what he was facing now as he prays his prayer in John 17. If you've got your Bibles open, please look down with me to verse chapter 1. Father, the time has come. The time, or the, in other translations, the, the hour had come. The enormity of this hour's coming cannot be overstated. So Jesus is referring to his imminent crucifixion, the climactic battle with sin, the devil, and death itself. Now Jesus is the Son of God, and so the fullness of God dwells in him. But he was God in the flesh, and so he was also fully man. And so this meant that the very human element 
of the pressure and responsibility that he carried on his shoulders at that very moment was immense. In all of human history, pressure like this has never been experienced before. And it never will be again. Jesus will be crucified and face God's punishment for man's sin. That includes your sins, it includes my sins. And countless souls before us and after us. This single event that is about to occur will send shockwaves through history and for the rest of time. And so the reality of this moment is that Jesus is operating in a collapsing sort of time frame. His betrayal and arrest were only hours away, and he knew only too well the physical and spiritual anguish that lay before him. So the physical torture alone that was about to be inflicted on him would leave him so mutilated that he would be barely recognizable as a human being. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this centuries before. He said of Jesus, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. It is a prospect of the spiritual anguish though that crushed Jesus the most. As we read in Mark 14, Jesus prays in a garden of Gethsemane just moments before his arrest, Father, Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This cup is a cup of God's wrath, described elsewhere in the prophets as being a picture of drinking down God's fury and punishment against sin. So the pressure of a task set before Jesus is beyond comparison. A man called Matthew Henry, who's a 17th century Preacher, and he wrote a commentary of the entire Bible, summarizes this very well. He says this, The hour of the Redeemer's death was the most remarkable hour and without doubt the most critical that ever was since the clock of time was first set going. So now that the hour has finally arrived, what does Jesus do? Well, verse 1, he looks towards heaven and praise to his Father. Let's not skip over that fact too quickly. Jesus, the Son of God, prays and seeks his Father's help. Surely if anyone could manage this in their own strength, it was Jesus. He always had the answers. He always knew what to do. He was always so brave. He had complete authority over the raging sea and the waves and and the wind. He cast out demons by just uttering a word. And by merely touching his clothes, people could be healed from all their diseases. But Jesus prays and depends upon his Father. And by doing so, he sets an example for us to follow in his steps. It's a reminder to us that none of us are too strong to pray. Well, what is it that he actually does pray to his Father for in this passage? Now, I'm sure as you, you saw it read, um, you can appreciate this, this chapter alone could, is worthy of an entire sermon series. Um, so what I've done is draw out three sort of key themes or areas of focus that Jesus prays for in this chapter. So my first sort of point is this. At this critical hour, Jesus prays for God's glory, for God's glory. Now, I'm no doubt that you already know that if a word is repeated, in a Bible passage, multiple times, that usually means it's, it's important. 
And we have it here in the first five verses, the words glory or glorify repeated. And also, if you get a theme at the start of a passage, uh, and then it's again repeated again at the end of the passage, it acts a bit like a, a bookend for that passage. It, it's a way of framing a passage or a central theme. And we get that here with the repeated theme of God's glory. It starts there in verse 5, and we get it at the end of the prayer as well in verse 24. Now, I think that there are two significant ways that Jesus prays for God's glory here. Firstly, he prays that the cross will glorify God. That Jesus prays that uh, the Father will glorify his Son as he finishes the work he's been given to complete on the cross. So Jesus is almost there. In verse 13, he says those words, I am coming to you now. In only a few hours' time, Jesus will declare the glorious words, it is finished. And in verse 5 and again in verse 24, he looks forward to his resurrection and ascension, where having finished that work of salvation, he will take his seat at the right hand of God the Father. And it is there that he would enjoy that the glory had with him before the world began. So Jesus prays firstly that his sacrifice on the cross will glorify God. Secondly, he prays uh, that the that his people through eternity will glorify God. If you want to look down at verse 24, I'll read that out again. So, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus wants his people to be with him in the midst of that glory. Jesus died on the cross to save his people from their sins and bring them this eternal life in his glorious presence. And only Jesus can give this eternal life. I read out two and three again. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God's glory will be demonstrated through Jesus saving his people from their sins and giving them eternal life to spend in his company forever. But what is surprising here from verse 3 is that eternal life starts right now in knowing God and walking with Jesus today. Now Jesus is very clear in the Gospels that we will all spend eternity in one of two places, either with him, eternal life, as we see in verse 3, being with him where he is, verse 24, or as he often warns in the Gospels, the, the alternative is forever separated from God in a place of darkness, eternal fire, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this morning, if you, if you want to be with Jesus where he is, if you want to know the only true God and have eternal life with him in glory, then you must call upon the name of Jesus today. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins and set us free from the burdens of sin and guilt and shame and sin and bring us eternal life with him. So if that is you, if you do want to be with Jesus where he is, then take John 17 verse 3, and simply ask Jesus that you might know him and he might know that eternal life that
that only he can give. Now, every day in our 21st century culture, we breathe in the toxic fumes of self-worship. We're taught the importance of self-love and self-esteem and the sacredness of your own personal truth or reality. And it is important to care for ourselves, of course it is, but there is a glorification and love of self that is just simply idolatry. And it is a very pervasive and attractive idolatry because who doesn't want to put themselves first in all things? And the problem is it makes us incredibly emotionally and spiritually fragile people. If we don't get the praise or the glory that we believe we're due, if we don't get our ego stroked regularly enough, we get criticized for something, it can cause us to emotionally shatter. And it can so easily infiltrate our minds and our hearts and our thinking and our prayers. It can make our prayers very self-centered, if we even pray at all. Because after all, if we are the center of our universe, then God will only get a look in when we're struggling with something. God becomes that of genie rather than our father and our friend. And it can make us instantly angry and resentful towards God when things don't go our way or we struggle with something because that upsets the plans that we had for ourselves. It must be God's fault. Now, the antidote to such self-worship and idolatry is to humble ourselves beneath the cross of Christ and recognize our helplessness and utter dependence on Jesus for all things. If you remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Uh, back in in Luke 11, he starts by saying, Father, hallowed be your name. So when we pray, like Jesus, start with glorifying God. Thank him for the cross and ask for the help and strength to live a life that glorifies him and not ourselves. Pray pray that your heart uh, and in your life, Jesus and his glory would increase and that you and your glory would decrease. Because anyway, as a a believer, you will never find peace, contentment, or satisfaction seeking glory for yourself. There is so much greater glory and joy to be had in knowing, verse 3, to be true in your life. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So don't envy those who go through life without a second thought for God, even if it appears on the surface that the sun always shines for them. They get the promotion you wanted. They're having the holiday that you would love. They always look amazing. Their house is better. Their children are more successful. They don't carry the same struggles that you carry. Ultimately, they are tragically missing out on knowing the only true God and through him eternal life in glory. As I was preparing for this, it made me think of one of my favorite verses, which is Psalm 4, verse 7. And I read that out to you. It's a psalmist prayer. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abounds. So you may look around and be discouraged seeing people basking in their own success and glory. Their grain, their new wine is abounding. But there is far more heart joy to be experienced in knowing the living God. And that's, that's the promise. 
So at the critical hour, Jesus has prayed for God's glory. And he continues in prayer for God's truth. My second point, for God's truth. Now, in verses 6 to 19, Jesus is praying primarily for his disciples. Um, and I know the NIV uh, sort of, sort of t- subtitles tell us that, um, but they weren't in the original. So how do we know he's praying for disciples? Well, we can see, because in verse 7, he's talking of those who have obeyed God's word. In verse 8, those who have accepted his word and have believed the truth. Verse 14, he describes them as those who he has given God's word, and he recognizes that they will be remaining in the world as he leaves it in verse 11. And then he speaks of how he is sending them into the world, just as the Son himself was sent in verse 18. So in this, we see God's plan, his ultimate plan. The Father sends his Son into the world. He pours himself into his disciples. He loves them. He sets an example. He gives them God's word. They accept his word. They believe the good news. Then, as promised, Jesus dies for humanity's sin. He rises again. And before he ascends into heaven, he sends them out um, with his word, with his message to preach. And so in verse 20, we see countless others come to believe in Jesus through their message. And so as weak as that sounds, Jesus is entrusting this eternal, life-giving, world-changing message to 11 fearful, confused, and very weak men. Now, I say 11 because Judas is very shortly about to betray Jesus, and he is the one doomed to destruction that Jesus speaks of in verse 12. And so these 11 floundering disciples, as you can appreciate, are in desperate need for prayer. And so Jesus prays for them. But he doesn't pray that they might find stable careers going forwards, find a nice spouse and a safe neighborhood to settle down and raise a family in. He doesn't pray for them to know financial security or to have greater self-esteem or belief in themselves. No, at the critical hour, what does Jesus pray for his disciples? Well, verse 17 helps us with that. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He prays that God's word would do its work in their lives, that the good work started in them might be continued. They might grow in the knowledge of God and the love for him. I said they're more like Jesus in their characters, in their words, and in their works. And then in verse 14 and 15, he also prays for their protection. Why does he pray for their protection? What do they need protecting from? Well, simply because the evil one, the devil will hate them. And it's clear why. In, in John 8, verse 44, Jesus describes the devil as being the father of lies, and that when he lies, he speaks his native language. There is no truth in this evil one whatsoever. And the disciples are being sent out into the world with the truth, and they'll come smack bang up against the devil, their enemy, who hates Jesus and hates the truth. And also being sent into a world of people who Jesus describes in John 3 as loving darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. And verse 14 tells us, doesn't it, that the people of the world will hate them as they hated Jesus. 
and his words. So the disciples have been sent out into the front line of a brutal spiritual war. Because they will be standing as a follower of Jesus, holding his truth and preaching it to the world, the world and the devil will hate them and will oppose him with all their power. Gloriously, um, Jesus' prayer here in this section has been answered. Testament to this is because, because of those 11 weak men, 2,000 years later, here we are in Oxford on a Sunday morning, and across the world, countless other souls are gathering together as local churches, worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples were protected, and their message of the gospel has been preserved. The battleground, however, has not changed. People still love darkness rather than light, and the devil has not stopped breathing out lies ever since he first lied to Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so in a time of fake news, misinformation, political polarization, in a time where morality, morality is not only confused, but turned upside down on its head completely, with a growing distrust in society of authority and in our leaders to steer us in a straight path. Jesus and his words are the rock to build our lives upon. Jesus said as much, if you remember in Matthew 7, he said this, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. At the critical hour, Jesus prays that God's truth would do its work in his disciples and through his disciples. So when you pick up your Bible and you read it, be assured that you are in the presence of God's truth. In the midst of a world that does not seem to know its right hand from its left. And as you read, pray that you might be sanctified by the truth, just like the disciples were. And that you might have the strength to build your life and the lives of your family upon that truth, even though it will cost you dearly in time to come. In the growing darkness around us, God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. So at the critical hour, Jesus has prayed for God's glory, he's prayed for God's truth, and he continues now to pray for the unity of God's people, the unity of God's people. I think it's always encouraging to know that someone is praying for you. If you're going through a difficult time and someone drops you a text to let them know they are praying for you, that can really lift your spirits. And if you're approaching a challenging situation in the future and you're nervous or anxious about it, but you know that trusted family and friends are praying for you, that can give you courage. I think it's also great when you, when you are in a, a one-to-one or a home group or um, in a, a prayer meeting and you listen to someone else pray for you, approaching God on your behalf. It's always really encouraging. Well, in the last section here in this passage, 20 to 26, we hear Jesus pray for us. So verse 20 my prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, uh, then Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for his church. And this prayer is powerful and is still being answered today. So at the critical hour, what does Jesus pray for his church? 
when he doesn't pray for great leaders, personalities, influences of people with great and varied gifts to be raised up. He doesn't pray for a trendy or progressive church that people will want to come to because of how cool and current the members are. Those things, humanly speaking, theoretically, could build his church, numerically at least. But he didn't pray for that. He prays for something that you cannot humanly manufacture, no matter what strategy or program you set in place. Jesus prays for the unity of his people. And we see that in 21. Uh, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And in 23, I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus sets the bar very high here. He wants his people to be united just like the unity that he enjoys with his Father. Now, I know full well that you know, 2,000 years since Jesus prayed this, there are many examples of disunity and division within the church. And some of you will know that personally and feel it keenly because you still carry the wounds from it. And we can, we can even see examples of disunity and division in the early New Testament church if you read the Bible. But there are many more examples, both in the New Testament but also throughout history, of a miraculous God-honoring unity. And I trust many of you will have experienced that yourselves as well. So those times of deep joy and love and companionship when you're serving and worshipping Jesus with other believers. I've known it and I, I think I describe it as almost like a taste of heaven, a glimpse into eternity. Before the summer, I think we, a few weeks ago, well, probably a few months ago now, we, we had a prayer meeting uh, with members of uh, the Christian Life Centre and I'm not sure many of us knew each other at the start of that prayer meeting. Um, we, and we probably have a different church culture, no doubt. We probably run our services in different ways to the Christian Life Centre. But when we prayed together, we were totally united in God and the gospel of his son. And it was a really special time of fellowship and prayer. Now, the Christian Life Centre is just down the road, but I'm sure many of you would testify. You can go anywhere in the world and find that same unity in Christ with believers who are otherwise total strangers. I think it's been said before several times, but we enjoy a particular unity here at MRC. I've been here a few years, but my early observations when I, when I started coming was that people were, were genuinely willing to share their lives with each other. So both the ups and the downs, they were willing to be weak with each other. That was really noticeable. And that takes humility, it takes trust, and it takes love. And these things aren't manufactured. These are the fruit of people that love the Lord and are growing in his likeness. Jesus always had time for people, and he always put each of us, everyone else's needs before his own. And I, and I saw that here at MRC, and I still see it here at MRC. But nevertheless, we must pray with Jesus for greater manifestations of God's unity amongst us. Because as we love and serve each other in unity, in the name of Jesus, it will be like a city of blazing light in a land of darkness, distrust, and division. The world will look at MRC and they will see God's glory, verse 22. 
They will come amongst us and they will experience the difference the gospel makes in our lives. They will know in their hearts that God's people possess a treasure and a unity that cannot be found anywhere else but in Jesus. And so in verse 21, Jesus prays, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And 23, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You may be sat here this morning and you feel like you have nothing to offer at MRC. You've got no real gift or talent to speak of. Perhaps you feel inadequate. Remember, though, that at the critical hour, Jesus doesn't pray for great gifts or personalities in his church. He prays for the same unity that he enjoyed with his father and enjoys with his father. So if you love Jesus this morning, then you can love his people. All you need is Christ in your heart. You don't need great gifts or talents to love God's people. If you're sat there feeling inadequate this morning, if you feel you've had to drag yourself here this morning, please know that even just your physical presence shows love and a desire for unity. Your presence at a home group or prayer meeting will be such an encouragement of unity because we draw strength from each other as we gather together in Christ's name. This is our tremendous calling and witness to the world. Jesus' prayer captures all of us in this regardless of our gifts or abilities. Now, there's, there's absolutely loads more that could be said on this passage. But I will finish, and let's finish by just remembering that intense pressure that Jesus was under at his most critical hour in history. And let's allow these three priorities of Jesus, the things he chooses to pray about at that critical hour, to be a model for our prayers this week. So at the critical hour, Jesus prays for God's glory, God's truth, and the unity of God's people. Amen.